All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have a Bible in front of you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you have access to God's Word on your phone or your tablet device, feel free to bring that out. The verses will also be on the, the screen, screens behind me as we go. One of the things we value uh, very much here at Emmaus is the study of God's Word and wanting to focus our lives on not hearing from a particular person, but that God, by the power of His Spirit, would speak to us. And we want to continue to study God's Word throughout the week. And I'm encouraged by how many of you have talked to me lately about the way that you're reading Scripture and studying Scripture. We want to offer you this morning, on Easter, a free gift, a free resource that you can use in reading Scripture and keeping Scripture in your life on a daily basis Many of you read devotional magazines like Open Windows or Journey or things like that. If you have a smartphone or a tablet device, whatever app store you use on that device, whether it's iTunes or Google Play or Android or whatever, if you go there and you search for Devo Hub, so Devo, D-E-V-O, short for devotional, Devo Hub, while you're here on the Emmaus campus, it works based on GPS on location, so you have to be here on the Emmaus campus, but we'll leave it open for several weeks. You can download for free five or six different devotionals, open windows, journey. There's one for kids, uh, parents, if on your tablet device you want to put a devotion that your kids can access at home, you can get it. You have to be here to get it loaded on your device, but then it's yours to take free of charge. And so we want that to be a gift to you that you can use to continue to put God's Word in your life. If you're not in the habit of reading the Bible, guys, put this on your phone. When you get to work, pull it out. You can read God's Word, be able to have a devotion for five minutes before you get started on the day. However you can use this, we want this be, uh, to be a gift for, for you as we think about studying God's Word together. So, once again, we'll leave that open for several weeks. You do have to be here on the campus uh, to, to download it, but hopefully that's something that, if you're not already in the habit of reading God's Word, uh, can, be of, can be of value to you. So, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, we're going to read verses 1 through 11 this morning. Now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, we don't use epochs very much, it's just kind of a word for seasons or periods of time. Brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you, for you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation, For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. 
May God bless the reading of his word. Have you ever gotten your days and nights mixed up? Now, if you've had a little baby in the house, there's a good chance that this has happened to you before. Many of you work shift work, and so you sleep during the day, or you try to sleep during the day, and you work at night. Uh, You've had this happen to you if you've traveled long distance on a plane, and you've experienced jet lag. I had this happen to me one time. I grew up in a very small community in the southwest part of Oklahoma. My family, we grew up where we lived right next to the school and the sports complexes right there in this little community, and we played eight-man football. So this is small school football, and I grew up as a little kid watching two-a-day practices happen. And I always thought as a little kid, man, that looks so much fun. And I found out it wasn't. And my football career was so, so short-lived, I didn't have to worry about it very much. But uh, when I was in eighth grade, we were able to go to two-a-day practices. So I woke up, looked at the clock, a little after six o'clock in the morning, strapped on the pads, walked across the yard, just past this one fence. The football field was right there. Got out there to the field. Crickets. Nobody's out there. So I thought, well, no big deal. You know, they probably pushed practice back 30 minutes or an hour and just just didn't get the memo. So I sat out there for a while. Nobody's showing up. So I go back to the house, and I walk in, I look. Oh, it wasn't a little after 6. It was 1230 in the morning. When you look at a clock and you get the short and the long hand mixed up, it looks like a little after 6 o'clock. But in fact, 30 minutes after midnight, I'd strapped on the pads and headed to the football field for practice. The reason there was nobody there is because it was the middle of the night. When you get your days and nights mixed up, you feel like a fool. But what we find out from this passage this morning is that knowing what time it is is actually eternally important. Because Easter is the difference between night and day. You look in 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now as to the times and the seasons, or the the when things will happen, now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. Now just before this, at the end of chapter 4, Paul had been writing to them about the second coming of Jesus, how Jesus would return in victory and all people would be brought together and the resurrection, the final resurrection would happen. And we live in a world, and Paul lived in a world, that was fascinated with knowing when the world was going to end. We have all kinds of movies and TV shows being made now about when the world was going to, is going to end. In 1988, there was a book written called 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Happen in 88, or Why the World Will End in 1988. Didn't happen. So the same guy wrote the same type of book the next year, in 1989. He wrote the same book in 93, in 94, in 97, and finally the publisher must have just said, sorry, we're not spending any money on this. We've spent a lot of money for the world not to end yet. The world people are fascinated by this idea of the end of the world. That's part of the reason that next week we're beginning a new sermon series in the book of Revelation. So if that's something you're curious about or you know people who think about, we're going to begin to address that question next week. But here, Paul says, we don't need to write to you about that. Why? Verse 2. You yourselves know full well 
that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Okay, there are two phrases here in verse 2 that we need to pay attention to. The first is the phrase, day of the Lord. Day of the Lord is a very common phrase in the Old Testament. So that first two-thirds of of your Bible, you get, especially in the prophets there in the Old Testament, you get this phrase, day of the Lord. When you think of the phrase, day of the Lord, you need to think of a coin, a two-sided coin. Kids, if on your notes on the back of the bulletin, if you want to draw a picture of, of a coin, when you hear the phrase, day of the Lord, one side of that coin is salvation. It's God's rescue that he brings to the world. So when we hear about the day of the Lord, it is the good news of God's final salvation, how he will rescue his people from evil and from all of their enemies. The other side of that coin, though, when you hear and you read about the day of the Lord, is God's judgment that he will bring against a world that is opposed to him. And one of the things that you find in the Old Testament is there were often people who wanted the day of the Lord to come because they thought it meant salvation, but then a prophet would show up and say, um, I don't think you actually want the day of the Lord to show up because you have outward religion. You look religious, but your heart is far from the Lord. And a lot of the Easter story, the Holy Week story that you read in the New Testament is about God coming to people through Jesus and saying, you think you're ready for the day of the Lord because you look religious on the outside, but in fact your heart is far from the Lord. It's going to be a day of reckoning. It's going to be a day of judgment. And that's why at the end of this verse you get the phrase, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. This is language that it will come unexpectedly. This is not something that you plan. This is not something that comes when it's convenient. It will come like a thief in the night, which is the same sort of language that Jesus used in the Gospels as he talked about the day of the Lord. Luke chapter 12, verse 39 and verse 40. Know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have left his house to be broken into. He would have been prepared. You also must be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. This message from Jesus is a message to be prepared. It's a message that says the day of the Lord will come. And the question is, will we be prepared or not for that day? For that day of reckoning, that day of being before the Lord. In 1 Thessalonians 5, Paul uses two different images to describe whether or not the people are ready. For being prepared, being ready, he uses the image of light. For not being prepared, for not being ready, he uses the image of darkness. And my prayer for your life, for my life, for our church this Easter is that we would love light rather than darkness, that you would be drawn to the light of Jesus instead of being caught in the darkness of not being prepared. And what we find here in these verses are three signs of darkness. What does it mean to not be prepared? What does it mean to live in darkness? The first image that we get is the image of being asleep. Look there in verse 6. It says, So then, let us not sleep, As others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep, in verse 7, do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. 
Now, it's obvious that Paul has not lived in some of the places that I've lived in. New Orleans, rural Mississippi, rural Oklahoma. I can assure you people get drunk at times other than the night. But Paul's using imagery here of night, and he catches catches two ideas, this idea of being asleep and this idea of being drunk. What does it mean to be in darkness, to not be prepared for the Lord? The first idea is that you would be asleep. Now, in 1 Thessalonians, Paul uses the term sleep to refer to two different things. He uses it to refer to being dead, which we saw last week in chapter 4, but he also here uses it to refer to sleepwalking. This is the idea that you would go through life not being aware of what's really important. That you would go through life essentially just oblivious to everything around you. You're just lazy in some senses. You, you don't find anything important. You look at my generation, you look at the generation coming after me, in many ways we typify what it looks like to sleepwalk through life. And this is an image that you get from Jesus' teaching as well. Mark chapter 13, verses 34 to 37, Jesus says, It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. Every preacher's favorite verse. Stay awake. If you've played sports before or you've been involved in an organization, there's a good chance that in a huddle or in a locker room or in a meeting, someone has yelled at you, wake up. There's a good chance you've yelled that at your kids before as they're just lollygagging through life, not paying any attention, don't find anything important, nothing to focus on. And you want, as a parent or grandparent, to yell, wake up. This matters. We have to pay attention to what's going on around us. This is not a game to be played. This is a battle. This is, are we going to live in the light, or are we going to live in the dark? And one of the dangers we, fight, we face with this idea of sleeping is that we would hit, we would hit the snooze button on life. We would, the way this works is, you know what, when I get out of high school, I'm going to get away from my parents, and then I'm probably going to get involved in church. I'm really going to get serious about my faith. Snooze button. You know what? When I get out of college, then I'm going to have some more time, and I'll probably get you know, involved with the Lord then. Snooze button. You know, actually, when, when I really get established with a job and get married, then I'm going to get involved and get focused on the Lord. Snooze button. When we have kids, that's going to be the time we're really going to get involved. Actually, it'll be when the kids get older. Actually, it'll be when the kids get, you see how this works. We continue to sleep through what really matters because we hit the snooze button and we wait for what's coming next. The message of Easter, the message of Easter, thinking about this image, is wake up. What did Jesus do in some real sense? He woke up from the grave. He came to life. The message of Easter is wake up and pay attention to what's going on. Are you sleepwalking through life or are you living this life that you've been given for the glory of God? The second image that Paul uses here is the image of drunkenness. Back there in verses 6 and 7, he talks about those who get, um, let us be alert 
and sober. At the end of verse 6, he's using those terms together. Those who sleep, do their sleeping at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. The idea they want it to be hidden. Once again, this idea of being awake and being sober, they're images that are used together other places in the New Testament. There's a man named Peter who wrote some books in the New Testament. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Same two words that Paul uses in 1 Thessalonians 5. Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. The problem with drunkenness is that you're not making wise decisions. You're not in control of that decision-making, and so something else will come in and devour your life. Paul wrote another letter to a church called Ephesus. Ephesians chapter 5. These are verses 15 through 18. Paul says in Ephesians 5, notice the same language being used again. Pay careful attention then to how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. Look at this phrase. Making the most of the time because the days are evil. And don't get drunk with wine, which leads to reckless actions, but be filled by the Holy Spirit. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself a particularly religious person or a particularly spiritual person, I think we would still agree with the fact that something will control our lives. Everyone here, whether you consider yourself a religious person or not, we realize that something will control our lives. This idea of drunkenness that Paul is using here when he says to be sober, what he's saying is make sure that nothing else controls your thinking, nothing else controls your life other than the Lord. Our lives can be controlled by work. Our lives can be controlled by the pursuit of success. Our lives can be controlled by good relationships, by your kids, by your spouse, by your parents, by bad actions, reckless actions that destroy our lives. The problem according to scripture, with being drunk, and not just being drunk on wine, but but having your life controlled by something else, there are two things that happen as a result of that. If you you can see your paper and you want to write down two other things on there, the two things that come with being drunk is, number one, it's a reckless action that leads to destruction. So so destruction, it's a destructive habit. The second thing, the second word is waste. So the first word is destruction, And the second word is waste. Drunkenness, and many of you could stand up and say, my life has been controlled by something other than the Lord, and it has led to destruction. And then the second reality is that it becomes a waste. We've been given one life, one life to live. And the story of Easter is don't live that one life controlled by something other than the Lord. Don't be intoxicated or controlled by something that's going to take you away from the light into the darkness. All right, number three, the third sign of darkness in this passage, and you've got to go back to verse three to to pick this up, but the third one we're going to call false security, trusting in something other than the Lord. Verse three, while they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly. This phrase, Peace and safety has two different backgrounds to it in Scripture. The first background comes from the Old Testament. The prophets would use this phrase because it was a phrase that was used by a lot of false prophets. Jeremiah chapter 6, verses 13 to 14. 
I think the, we may have these verses. Uh, Jeremiah six thirteen to 14. For from the least to the greatest of them, everyone is making profit dishonestly. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have treated my people's brokenness superficially, claiming peace, peace, when there is no peace. Here's the danger according to the prophets. The danger would be that someone would come along and tell you, you know what, just live your life however you want. That's true for them, but it doesn't have to be true for you. Give your best shot, do some good things, and you're going to have peace with God or peace with the higher power. And Jeremiah comes and says, that's not peace. That's trusting in something other than the Lord. It's possible to say peace and safety and really not know the security that comes from the Lord. Here's the other background that goes with that phrase. Paul is writing in a time when the Roman Empire is dominating the world. Here's what would happen. The Roman Empire would come into an area and they would conquer a group of people or they would conquer an area and they would use this phrase. They would say, we're going to bring peace and safety to this area. So it was considered a gift, an act of salvation by the Roman Empire. Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is coming along in 1 Thessalonians and saying, no human institution and no human effort will ever bring true peace and security in your life. Hear that message on Easter. No human institution, no government, no church organization, no human effort, no matter how many religious rituals you participate in, no matter how many good things you do, that will never bring true peace and safety to your life. That true peace and safety is only found through the light of Jesus Christ. Without that, we have what verse 3 says at the end. It says, destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. Now the world in which I live in, destruction comes upon the person who uses the analogy of labor pains and they've never been in labor. So woe to Paul as a man that he decided to describe this as labor pains. Honey, I'm sure that hurts. I hope that, you know, when we lived uh, in New Orleans, uh, our, well actually our two oldest were both born in New Orleans, but our, our son, he was born at a hospital downtown after Hurricane Katrina no NASCAR driver can compete with navigating Hurricane Katrina potholes as you're trying to get to the hospital while your wife's in labor saying, drive faster, drive faster. And you're like, I'm trying to avoid the pothole and drive faster. And I bet that really hurts. So uh, I, I'm not sure why. Paul picks up on this language here because it's common language in the Old Testament. It's common language in the ancient world for the way that if we, just as labor t- pains are inescapable, for a woman, so the coming day of the Lord, and this is where we transition from funny illustration to dead serious reality comes to play. The destruction of the Lord, the day of the Lord, comes whether a person is ready or not. The idea is will we be prepared living in the light of Jesus, or will we find ourselves living in darkness? And darkness that leads to destruction, that leads to death, that leads to everlasting separation. That's why it's serious business. That's why we can't sleep through it. That's why we can't be drunk through it. That's why we can't trust in anything that's ultimately going to let us down because we find that if we trust in the wrong thing, it leads to destruction. 
And man, it would be a sad story if it ended there. But thank God it doesn't. Because the story of Easter is that light has defeated darkness. That light has broken through the sin and the destruction and the darkness that would come from all things opposed to God. And we find here in verses 3 and 4, verse 4, Paul says, You, brethren, are not in darkness, that the day would overtake you like a thief, for you are all sons of light and sons of day. How can that happen? How can we go from living in darkness to living in light? The way that's possible is actually pictured in the reality of Jesus' death and resurrection. This is so cool. It's amazing the way this works out. The end of Mark. Mark is one of the Gospels that tells the story of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Mark chapter 15, in verse 33, it says, When the sixth hour came, Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour. So get the image in your, in your mind. At the time of Jesus' death on the cross, at the time of the crucifixion, darkness comes over the land. But it's not just darkness in the sense of no light. It's all the pain, all the sin, all the rejection of the Lord for all time, throughout all eternity, among all people is put upon Jesus. All darkness is placed there so that no matter what kind of darkness you've experienced in your life, no matter what kind of darkness you're going through right now, and many of you have been through deep, dark valleys in your life, no one can say that the light can never make it into my life, that I'm too dark, that I'm too far gone, because all of the darkness of the whole universe and all eternity was put on Jesus, and he took it all for us. So that, chapter 16, verse 2, watch how this happens. Chapter 16, verse 2 of Mark. Very early, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. Now, we realize in interpreting Scripture, when it says the sun had risen there, it means that it's early in the morning, the sun has come up. And it also means the sun has risen. That all of the darkness that was present in the death of Jesus and his burial, the sun rises, and there is hope, and there is joy, and there is peace, and there is safety. And all of this light breaks forth through the darkness that's opposed to Christ. And there are three signs of light that we find in this passage. Number one, and these are on your notes, I think, on the back. Three signs of light. What does it look like when light breaks through darkness? Number one, it looks like finding salvation through Jesus Christ. Nothing else but Jesus Christ. Verses nine and 10. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ who died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with him. If you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself particularly religious or spiritual and you're here out of respect for family or Easter, I want you to know the message of Easter. It's that in our sins, separated from God, we are in ultimate darkness. But because Jesus took that darkness for us on the cross, And because he rose again, we are able to have life. 
He took our darkness, he took our death so that we could have his light and his life and that it would last forever. And no matter what darkness you've been in, no matter what darkness you're going through, he is able to bring complete and perfect salvation in your life. That is what we celebrate at Easter. And then we find out that when that light breaks through in your life, we still fight a battle. And here's the battle that we fight. And there's a good chance that every one of us in here is going through this. We fight the battle of do we love darkness rather than light? Look at verse 8. Watch what Paul does here in verse 8. There's a, there's a key word that happens there. He says, but since we are of the day. So if you are here this morning and you say, I've experienced the light of Jesus' salvation. I know what it is to be saved. Since we are of the day, what do we do? Let us be sober. Let us pay attention. Put on the breastplate of faith and love and as a helmet, the hope of salvation. In other words, when you experience the salvation of Jesus in your life and you know what it is to have that light at work in your life, you're going to face a battle. And that battle is that we would be tempted to walk back into darkness, to play with darkness, to hide in darkness. And Paul says, Put on the armor of faith, of love, of the hope of salvation, and fight that battle that you would not find yourself loving darkness rather than light. If you're here this morning and you have not been involved in a church in a long time, you haven't read the Bible in a long time, you haven't put your faith in action in a long time, but the Lord has called you back here on Easter morning, the message is, is if you've experienced that salvation, We are called to walk in the light. We are called because of that light of Jesus working in our life. How do you do that? You expose yourself to the light. How do you expose yourself to the light? You read God's word. You spend your time. You spend time gathered around God's people in worship and fellowship, growing in your faith, and you put your faith into action. Because when the light of Jesus works through our life, we end up shining that light to others. Look at verse 11. What's the result of all this? Verse 11 says, Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another just as you also are doing. When the light of Jesus breaks through the darkness in our own lives, what is able to happen is that we are then able to shine that light into a dark world. If that sounds vaguely familiar, it's the same idea that's found in the teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, that we become the light of the world. The story of Easter is not that we would just be saved and go to heaven. It's that the light of Jesus would begin to break out throughout all of a dark world as his people shine that light into the world, overcoming darkness, overcoming injustice, overcoming all the results of sin. We shine that light into the world. That's the hope of Easter. Not that it ends today, but that it continues forever as the Lord works in our lives. I want to read an email to you that I received several months ago, but it's an email that has stayed with me for for a long time now. So the email begins, Owen, we haven't seen each other in years. And you always worry (laughs) what comes next after an email begins that way. Owen, we haven't seen each other in years. But something happened to me a while back which continues to affect me daily. I thought I was a Christian in September 2012. I owned a Bible and could answer some Bible questions. I even took my family to church a couple of times a year and prayed if I really needed something. My marriage was well-intentioned 
but built on personal willpower. My job was like that. I would work hard. I had a lot of success. But inside, I was completely miserable. I came to hate my job and the people I worked with. My wife was so busy with our first baby that she didn't have time for me. I felt alone and useless. I'd learned in the Navy that drinking made me feel young and alive. So that's how I handled my problems. I would drink heavily on the weekends and encourage others to join me. I felt like I would do anything to mask my loneliness and depression. Eventually, my wife had enough and left. Crushed, I hit my knees and prayed like never before. My wife did return, and I joined AA. I went to meetings for a few months, and it helped me understand why I drink, but that was about it. There was still emptiness inside me. So at my wife's suggestion, we visited a local Baptist church. We felt so welcome that we then attended an informational meeting for the church. Over the next six months, I heard the gospel, listened to sermons, and went to Sunday school. Again, at my wife's suggestion, I attended a men's retreat, which provided a desperately needed time out from life. One night at the retreat, I was alone in my car with the Bible. I read how God cares so much for us that we can stop worrying about worldly concerns and live for him. At that moment, I felt what was surely the Spirit of God come over me, and I finally understood the gospel, the good news of Jesus. I realized for the first time that I could trust him and that I needed him, and I knew instantly at that moment I would never be able to not follow Jesus. When I walked through the door after returning home, my wife was crying from just having fought with her mother. I held her tight and for the first time in my life prayed with her. I told her I had made a real commitment to follow Jesus from now on no matter what. My wife shortly thereafter became a follower of Jesus and it has changed our future. I am so thankful that my children will grow up in a household committed to the Lord. We now have joy and hope. That joy and that hope is the light of Jesus Christ breaking through darkness and bringing salvation, bringing faith and love and hope to a family that did not have it. When we hear God's word, when we hear the story of Easter, not me, not anything I have to say, but what God's word, the way it speaks to us about light and darkness, we have to respond. And the question is extremely simple. Are we living in darkness, opposed to the ways of the Lord, asleep, drunk, feeling secure in something that will ultimately let us down? Or are we living in light? Have we experienced the hope and the joy and the power of the resurrection at work in our lives? Here in just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. After I pray for us, we're going to stand up and sing a song. There are two very simple ways that you can respond to God's word. In your bulletin was that guest card that was inside. At the bottom of the guest card is a little square. The back of the card is blank. If you need to talk to someone about the light of Jesus, if you say, I'm living in darkness, I need hope, I need to talk to someone about finding that light in my life, use that card. Just write a little note on the bottom, and you can hand that card in the offering plate when it comes around in about five or ten minutes. You can put that card in there, and we will get in contact with you. If you need to talk to somebody right now, you say, 
I'm ready to respond. I need to pray with someone. Maybe you're here and you know you're a Christian. You've experienced the light of Jesus in your life, but you've been living in darkness, maybe hidden darkness from everybody else, but you've been living in darkness for a long time. Easter is the perfect time to be reminded of the power of light in your life that the Lord would call you back to his word, that the Lord would call you back to his people, that the Lord would call you back to putting your faith in action. If you're in the stadium seating, there are gonna be people just below the stadium seating that you can pray with so you don't have to come all the way to the front. There'll be people here at the front that you can pray for or pray, pray with. However God is working in your life, let's respond right now. Father, we thank you for this passage from 1 Thessalonians. The idea that at the death of Jesus, darkness had spread over all the earth. And God, that every one of us, when we look in our lives and we look in our heart, we know what that darkness looks like personally. We turn on the news, we open the internet, we look around us and we know what that darkness looks like in our world. But when they went to the tomb, the sun had risen Light had stepped down into darkness. Darkness was destroyed. Death was destroyed. Hope and peace and joy and salvation were available through Jesus. And God, I pray that you would call us to that light. God, that you would remind us of the joy of our salvation. If there are people here who know what it is to follow Jesus, but they've been walking in darkness, God, that you would call them to the light. If there are people who have never experienced that hope and joy, God, that they would know that this morning. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.